All right, we are in John 14 tonight. Thank you for, again, making time and bringing your Bible. The year was 1857. There was a crisis in America. Our country's not immune to crises. A shipment of gold coming from England to the United States had uh, sunk. The ship had sunk, and back then the dollar was based on the gold standard. And the telegram had just been uh, popularized, so word spread around the world. It was the first time there was an ec- a world economic crisis. And then our country was really at odds over the issue of slavery. And so it was a tough time in the United States. In New York City, there was a small church of just a couple dozen people. It was a Dutch Reformed church in New York right uh, along Fulton Street. Fulton is the street that comes down to where one trade tower is now, where the two trade towers stood when I was a kid. So in the 1800s, the small little congregation was bemoaning the fact that they were dwindling down and the church was getting smaller and smaller. And so they were talking about ideas. And one of the men said, Pastor, I'll tell you what I'd be willing to do. He said, if the church would take me on, I'll quit my job and I'll just go out and be a missionary to our city. So the church voted to do that. He went out every day. He would knock on doors. He would give leaflets, uh, gospel tracts to people, and engage folks anywhere he could find them in New York, of course, New York City, even then, it wasn't hard to find people. He did this for an entire year, and imagine this. After one year of active evangelism, not a single person had come to saving faith in Christ. Now, what would you be thinking if you had given a year to evangelize and nobody came to Christ? I mean, I I grew up in South Jersey. I would have been thinking, that's it. God's done with New York. Wrote Ichabod, you know, the glory's departed. Forget that place. But that wasn't the man's response. His name was Jeremiah Lanfear. And he went back to the pastor and he said, you know, pastor, I, I, I'm not giving up on evangelism. The Lord has given us the Great Commission. It's how we reach people. He said, but the thought occurred to me as I've been struggling with this this year that maybe the problem is not with the public. Maybe it's with us. He said, you know, if a woman is not personally healthy, she's not likely to be able to give birth to a baby. She's got to be in good health herself before she can birth a baby. He said, and I wonder if it's not the same with churches. The pastor said, what would you suggest? He said, how about an organized prayer effort? The Lord said, my house will be called a house of prayer. And they decided to start a Wednesday prayer meeting. Do you know why Wednesday prayer meetings are common in this country? It is because of the prayer movement that started in 1858. You all know why we meet on Sunday. That's the day the Lord rose from the dead. But why Wednesday? There's no biblical reason for that. But it was because of these Wednesday prayer meetings. So they, they said, all right, we'll start a Wednesday, a midweek prayer meeting. And it was a daytime prayer meeting. It was going to meet from uh, noon to 1 o'clock. So the first week, Jeremiah had advertised that he got there. And from 12 to 12.30, nobody showed up. He was getting discouraged. But a few people trickled in. And so by the end of that hour, they had about six people the first week. So they took some encouragement. They went back the next week, and there were, I think it was 14 About 14 people met, so okay, we're growing. The next week, they had about 23, and this thing started gaining some traction. And finally, they said, you know, instead of doing this once a week, what if we did it Monday through Friday, every business day? So they decided, okay, we'll do that. So they met Monday through Friday. Soon, that church was so filled that they had to seek out other places to meet. So there were some area churches. They said, you can use our church 
Well, eventually this thing got big enough that local businesses, secular in nature, said, we have these lunch halls. Back then, you know, they, people would bring their lunch to work and they'd have these big lunch areas. They said, you can use the lunch hall for your meeting. Well, this thing got to be enormous. In fact, they're meeting now Monday through Friday at the noon hour. Horace Greeley, who was the newspaper editor of uh, New York City at the time, by the way, no friend of Christianity, okay? He was an antagonist to Christianity, but this is back when newsmen just reported the news. And he heard about this prayer phenomenon, and he decided to go out and find out what is going on. Uh, you know Greeley Hill Baptist Church. That Greeley Hill was named after Horace Greeley, so it was the guy from New York that came out here. Uh, so he went, he, he said, I only had time to get to a dozen of these locations in that hour, but he said in just the dozen meetings that I attended, there were 6,000 people meeting to pray. One man had come from, uh, let's see, it was Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska. He said he had traveled across the northern tier of the country, and he said, as I worked my way across the nation, there are prayer meetings like this in every town that I came through, coming across. When God started doing a work among the praying people, there were 10,000 folks a week coming to Saving Faith. 10,000 people a week getting saved. They said at the height of that revival, there was actually a week, they recorded 50,000 professions of faith. And again, these were not preaching conferences. This was prayer, focused on praying for God to do a work in a desperate country. It's estimated that in 1858, approximately one million Americans came to Saving Faith. The churches swelled. And... Interestingly enough, this is the same city that one year before not a single person had received the gospel. What happened? God stepped down. I want to give you a message tonight from John chapter 14 called Greater Works. You'll see that phrase in our passage, Greater Works. This is one of my favorite messages in the Bible to preach. If you have notes, I actually preached this one time in your church about 18 years ago. It is such a burden on my heart that I am revisiting this message often with what's going on in our country. I'll tell you, there are some who have a biblical perspective on history who believe that that prayer meeting was what saved America from dissolution during the Civil War. There was a work of revival going on in southern churches as well as northern churches, and you figure that the ramifications of that Civil War, we literally could have been torn apart once and for all. Wouldn't Satan have loved it? But God in his mercy used praying people to spare a country in desperate straits. Economic downturn, turbulent times, a country deeply divided. Does it sound familiar? And the answer is the same. John 14, these will be familiar words. In fact, uh, many of you know the opening part of this. You may know some of these by memory. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 12. 12 is our text for tonight, but let me get the context here, okay? John 14, verse 1. Again, Christ speaking let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you'd known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, 
Show us the Father, it sufficeth us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Now before we read our text, I want you to think about where we've just been. Jesus says, don't be troubled. I'm going to go, referring to his ascension after his resurrection. I'm going to go back, and I'll prepare a place for you. Must be some place we've all heard. He's been working on it for 2,000 years. He spoke the worlds into existence in six days, and he's been working on our future home for, 6, 000, uh, for um, 2,000 years. Must be something, right? And, and they said, well, Lord, this is great. And he says, I'm going to tell you, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody, nobody's going to get to the Father but by me. And so Philip, you know, well-intentioned, one of his own followers says, well, how about this? Would you just introduce us to him? You just show us the Father, and that'll be sufficient, Lord. And what does he say? You've seen me. You've seen the Father. Why do you ask me to show you the Father? You've seen him. He dwells in me and I in him. Hey, anybody tells you Jesus never claimed to be God has not done an honest reading of the book of John. Repeatedly, he tells, this is who I am. And believe, verse 11, believe me, I'm in the Father, the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. In other words, my works prove who I am. And then speaking about those works, he says in verse 12, verily, verily, I say to you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Back when I was in college, that, that statement arrested my attention. I've got to tell you, if, if I stood before you and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do greater works than Jesus Christ, that would be, at the very least, presumptuous, probably sacrilegious or blasphemous. But it's Jesus who said this. If you believe on me, not only the works I do, you'll do, but greater works than these will you do. What in the world does that mean? That's what we're going to look at tonight. Greater works, I've subtitled it, A Call to Revival. Greater works, this really is a call to revival. Let's just take a moment and pray and ask God to teach us. Lord, I thank you for when I was a teenager, I had a pastor that taught me not just what to think, but how to think. And uh, I don't want to be anybody's shaman tonight. I'm not, I'm not the guru. All I do is point people to you. I'm just a paper boy. I deliver your news. But we have a teacher. Dear Holy Spirit, you're our teacher. You are holy. You are spirit. And you are right. You are God. Dear Spirit of truth, I pray tonight you guide us into all truth. You've told us we need not that any man teach us. You have an unction from the Holy One. You understand all things. This is one of those that's just seemingly uh, monumental. How do, we, how do we wrap our mind around? How do we comprehend this? I pray you'd teach us tonight me included. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So interesting, the works I do, he'll do also. What in the world could this possibly mean? Well, I want you to notice that the, the passage that troubles us, that, that perplexes our mind, is greater works. Okay, greater is a word of comparison. So you remember when you were a kid in school and you learned um, there, there are, there's good and there's better and there's best, all right, levels, uh, words of comparison. Greater is obviously a term of comparison. I'm going to use these steps up here to illustrate tonight. 
So let's say where we want to get. We want to get top level here. So this is where we're trying to go, greater works. But to get here, there's a little bit of a progression. And it's very simple. If you want to follow along, number one tonight, we're going to start with this. The proper view of works. Let's start with the proper view of works before we get on to the greater works. All right, what's the proper view of works? The proper view of works is that our works cannot save us. Our works can't save us. In fact, go back to our text. Notice he says, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. What's the word, what's the phrase believe on? Remember, I illustrated that this morning, and it is to put your dependence upon him. It's not just to know the facts, but it's to fully rely on him for salvation. So he that believeth on me, what do we call a person who believes on Jesus Christ? A Christian, a believer, yeah. So he's a believer in Christ. He's born again. Okay, go with me for a minute to the book of uh, Romans, Romans chapter 3. And while you're turning there, let me remind you, he says verily, verily. You know when you see verily in the Bible? The Lord doesn't just throw out words to sound poetic or flowery. You know why? There's a meaning for all these words. Well, what does verily mean? What's, let's see, what's the root of the word verily? You know what the root of that word is? Veritas. Yeah, truth, veritas. We, we have the word verify that comes from that, right? Or um, validate, okay? So we're, if you do verification, you're going to find out if that's actually true. Now, wait a minute. In verse 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So wasn't everything he said true? Well, yeah, of course it was. So why do he sometimes say verily, verily? Well, it's a point of emphasis. Think of it this way. It's like if you, if you do something in writing and you want to emphasize a point, we have a way of putting things in bold print or sometimes we highlight things that we're reading or we'll underline something. Okay, when you see a verily, verily in the Bible, that's a highlighted truth. That is, don't miss this one. Okay, are, are there certain things in your Bible you underline? You probably find a lot of the verily, verily expressions underlined in your Bible. These are truths that don't miss this one, okay? So why does he say, he that believeth on me? Well, we're in Romans 3 now, and what does the Lord say about works? Well, the truth is, first of all, our works can't save us. Romans 3, look at verse 10. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. How many righteous people are there? None. You're familiar with these verses. Verse 12, they're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. How many good doers are there in the world? And you think, man, why, why is the world so evil? I was having a discussion with my daughter the other day. She said, "Our, you know, we have a puppy we're training now. And she's like, oh, she's so bad sometimes. I said, well, at least she doesn't have a sin nature. She said, she, well, don't dogs have a sin nature? I said, no, they don't. Why do they act so bad? I said, well, there's still the corruption from the fall. You know, that's when animals became kind of vicious and what. But they don't have morals. They don't understand right or wrong. People have sin natures. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Which is, by the way, why people, you know, dog lovers say dog is man's best friend because the dog doesn't have a sin nature. It's got a stubborn will, but it doesn't have a sin nature. But guess what? You and your kids were all born with sin natures. We all have them. Okay, so there's none that doeth good. Well, you know, and if you, you have Catholic friends, they might say to you, what about Mother Teresa? You got friends in the evangelical world that would say, well, what about somebody like Billy Graham? You know, well, what about our pastor? Well, wait a minute. Inherently, how many people do good? By themselves? None. Jesus said, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Now, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That's Philippians 4, 13. But John 15, 5, he said, without me, you can do 
nothing. We can't do good without the Lord. In fact, go to verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Look at verse 23. You all know this one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's God's glory? That's his perfection, his goodness. He's good, we're not. We've all sinned and come short of that. Look at verse 28. Therefore, we conclude a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Okay, the truth of the matter is our works can't save us. In fact, in context, just keep going to the next chapter, chapter 4. What should we say that Abraham, our father, is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath worth the glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it, that faith, was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. What does that mean? You remember Isaiah the prophet said, all our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. All our attempts at doing good are like filthy rags. That's why I quoted this morning from Matthew on the day of judgment. People said, we preached in your name, we cast out demons in your name, you know, we did many wonderful works. And he says, I never knew you. Why does the book of Proverbs say the plowing of the wicked is sin? Man, if you're a farmer, you better plow your fields. Well, a lot of farmers think, hey, I work hard, I'm a good person. But all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. If we're looking to ourselves to become justified before God, we're in trouble because there's none that doeth good. All of us are unrighteous before God. So that's the point. Our works can't save us. I'll give you another one to jot down. It's Galatians 2.16 Paul said this, knowing this, that a man is not justified by the works of the flesh, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. He goes back and forth between works and grace. And here's Paul, who was a Pharisee. He had been a Jewish um, zealot, you know, not a zealot in the political sense, but he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he says, I figured out, I can't earn righteousness. And in fact, he said in Philippians, going about to establish my own righteousness, that's when he realized I'm hopeless. So he received Christ's righteousness. Okay, so our works can't save us. Then note this, only God's work can save us. Only God's work can save us. Uh, Some religious Jews asked Jesus, "What, what should we do that we might work the works of God? He said, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. That's in John 6, verses 28 and 29. So only God's work can save us. And again, Galatians 2.16, you might put down with that that observation because again, it's not by works we do. It's by grace that we're justified. In fact, by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, we're gonna get there in a minute. So first truth is this, our works can't save us. Think about this. If somebody uh, got arrested for robbing a convenience store, and you wouldn't have to look hard in this state to find that, would you? Uh, somebody gets busted for robbing a convenience store, and they get taken in, and the judge, uh, they're, they're going to speak before the judge, and how do you plead? And he says, well, look, judge, I know I was with my friends when they went and robbed the store, but I, I go to church every week. Listen, I, I give money in the offering plate at church. Imagine if the judge said to him, young man, You're not here because you failed to give enough money in the church offering. You're here because you robbed a convenience store. Notice, the practice of doing good would not exempt one from the punishment, the penalty of committing crimes. 
Okay, the Bible says, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. That's James 2, verse 10. So you and I, no matter how much good we attempt to do, we are guilty before God, which is exactly why Jesus had to die on the cross. He didn't die for any wrong he had done. He died for all the wrong that I've done, the wrong that you've done, the sins that we've committed against the holy God. So the reality is our works can't save us. Okay, so back to our text in John 14, 12. So verily, verily, truly I say to you, don't miss this fact, he that believeth on me, okay, so that's a Christian, the works that I do shall he do also. All right, that brings us to a second point. First of all, we have the proper view of works. We're still looking to get to the greater works. We'll get there. But second, I want you to see the practice of good works. Okay, one, proper view of works. Two, the practice of good works. We'll get to the greater, but he says, if you believe on me, the works I do, you'll do also. Well, you just told us that you don't get to heaven by doing good works. True, but I want you to go to Ephesians chapter two with me. I quoted two, eight, and nine. We gotta get one more verse in the context here. That would be verse 10. Many of you are knowing where we're going here. Ephesians two, eight through 10. All right, so two, eight. Again, Paul the apostle is used of God to write these words. He had been one going about to establish his own righteousness by his endeavors. 2.8 says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Okay, by grace, what's grace? God giving us what we don't possess ourselves. We call it unmerited favor. It's, it's a gift from God. By grace, we're saved through faith. What's faith? That's the right response to grace. That is believing God. It's not just believing in God, it's believing him. If I said, do you believe Pastor Rogers? You would be wise if you said, uh, yeah, what did he say? Because, you know, sometimes the man jokes. Sometimes he's kidding around. Sometimes, you know, he, he's just speaking opinion or telling a story. But when he's preaching the word, you know he's serious about it, right? Okay, you would have, if somebody said, Mike Rogers, do you believe Rich Tozer? He'd say, um, yeah, what did he say? Before you can say you believe somebody, you've got to know what they said, Right? So that's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. Okay, so by grace, you're saved through faith. How shall they hear without a preacher? Somebody's got to tell them the truth. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So the grace doesn't come from us. The salvation doesn't come from us. That's God. But then notice this in verse 10. And we are, for ye are his workmanship, we are, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walk in what? Good works. Okay, we're not saved by works, but we're saved under good works. I've been in Florida the last few months, and you know, if you see citrus trees, well, you got them in California. You see citrus trees, you know, an orange tree does not become an orange tree by producing oranges. An orange tree produces oranges because it's an orange tree, okay? So you don't hear... Uh, you know, like when I'm down in Porterville and I'll see, I'll go by the fields of these trees. and I'll, You don't hear trees straining to try to produce fruit. They just, it's the nature of the tree. They produce fruit. I'm not a Christian because I do good works. But once I'm a Christian, I will produce good works. Colossians 2.6, as you've therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How'd you receive him? By grace through faith. So now how do you live your life from that point? Same way, by grace through faith. So there should be works. Now, here's the perplexing part. 
Jesus said, whoever believes on me, the works I do, he'll do also. Usually you and I think of the miraculous works of Jesus. We think of giving sight to the blind and making a lame man walk and cleansing a leper, you know, and raising the dead. And all of us think, well, I don't, I've never done any of that. But listen, that wasn't the sum total of Jesus' life. Those were the, he did those things to demonstrate that he was God, obviously to benefit the people that he was helping, but there's a greater purpose. He was demonstrating that he was God. But that wasn't the net net of Jesus' life. That wasn't the sum total of Jesus' life. In fact, I love this verse from um, Acts chapter 10, verse 38 says, Jesus went about doing good. Was he only doing good when he was healing blind people or making lame people walk? How about when Jesus took little children up in his arms and he blessed them, you know? How about when he spent time talking to the woman of Samaria and he didn't do anything miraculous there. He's just talking to her about the biggest need of her life is salvation from sin. He went about doing good. So before we get to the greater works, let's think about what kind of works did Jesus do in the day in and day out? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is he prayed. So if you want to talk about the practice of greater works, prayer. Let's think about prayer for me. He prayed. Let me give you a few texts. Uh, Mark 1.35. In the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out, departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. Okay, that's Mark 1.35. In uh, Luke 6, verse 12, we read that Jesus went out into a mountain and continued all night in prayer to God. Uh, let's see, Luke 22.39 says, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, or went to the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was wont, W-O-N-T. Um, the term meant, as was his custom, as was his habit, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane as he was wont. Meaning, when he was in town, he would, that was his prayer spot. Remember, he was from Galilee, but when he would come to Jerusalem, he'd go out among the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where he would pray. Okay, so as was his habit. Uh, Ed, usually when I come to town, I walk the property here. And one night, Ed came out wondering what in the world is going on. There's a guy with a headlamp. You may catch me on video this week walking the property, because when I'm here, I like to walk the backfield, you know, and that's... That's kind of my prayer time. Okay, Jesus prayed. Think about this. He's the Son of God. He prayed. If he needed to pray, do you think you might need to pray? Yeah. In fact, how much more do we need to pray? One of my favorite quotes on prayer outside of the Bible, the biblical passages, is a, a statement by a man named Owen Carr. I know I've made it here before. But Owen Carr said, a day without prayer is a boast against God. That's well said. A day without prayer is a boast against God. In other words, when we don't pray, in effect, we've said, thank you, Lord, but I'll handle it today. Now, nobody would say that, but isn't that what we're saying when we don't pray? A day without prayer is a boast against God. That's a, that's a good one to chew on. Okay, so he prayed. What else about him? Well, he meditated on Scripture. Let's think about meditating on Scripture for a minute. Now, I thought, where am I going to go in the Bible to demonstrate that Jesus meditated on Scripture? Well, the one passage I thought of was Luke 2.52, where Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he didn't come into the world a full-grown human. He was born as a baby. And being born as a baby, he did not speak full sentences when he was born. You know, he did not say, hello, Mary, hello, Joseph. Yes, I'm a baby, but I'm here to be your Savior. He did not come into the world speaking full sentences, right? Am I stretching it to tell you that he didn't come into the world spouting off Bible verses either? He had to learn 
the very words he himself had authored. Think of that ramification. Philippians tells us that he humbled himself, became obedient unto death. It would have been humbling enough to take the place of Caesar, the most powerful man in the world at the time. Jesus didn't come to take Caesar's place. He came as a peasant. His parents were so poor, they had to offer two turtle doves when he was dedicated in the temple. That was the least allowable sacrifice, only for the very poor. And that's where Joseph and Mary were in the whole dynamic of things. It would have been humbling enough to come into the world as prime minister or emperor, but he came as a peasant. And he didn't come in spouting off the word of God. He had to learn it. Further proof, I think, is in Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delights in the law of the Lord and his law doth he meditate day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Okay, that's Psalm 1, 1 through 3. If that's true of the godly man, was it true of the Son of God? Well, you know it was. So think about it. What does it mean to meditate? Every time I come, I talk about meditate. Meditate. It means to chew the cud. It means to think through the truth. It means to ponder the the principles of God's word. Okay, every day he would think about what his father said. How How many times in Jesus, in just conversation, is quoting passage after passage from what we know as the Torah, the Old Testament scripture? Okay, now he meditated on scripture. Do you? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Okay, think about this. Give us this day our daily bread. That refers to physical food. But if he said, give us our daily bread and we need food for the body, then he said, man shall not live by bread alone. If you need food for the body every day, how much more do you need food for the soul every day? So he prayed. He meditated on scripture. Something else, he served others. He served others. So let's talk about service. Okay, so there is prayer. There's meditation on Scripture. There's service. We're talking about, again, Jesus and John 14, 12. And we've looked at the, uh, the uh, proper view of works. Our works can't save us. Only God can save us. Now we're talking about the practice of good works. What kind of good works? Well, I prayed, meditated on Scripture. He served others. Um, I'll give you, for sake of time, I'll quote it. Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28 says, you know that the kings of the Gentiles exercise authority upon them. They that are great exercise dominion over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be chief among you, or whosoever be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, it would have been humbling enough to come and take over Caesar's spot. Serve me, but no. He came as a peasant. He had to run from Herod. His family ran from Herod when all the children in Israel being slaughtered by the king on the announcement that Jesus had been born, the Messiah had been born. Huh. He served others. One day I was in the lazy boy chair in my trailer, and I, I, my idea of a piece of furniture, the legs need to come up, right? So uh, I, I like put my legs up. So I got my recliner, I'm sitting there. And my, one of my daughters walked by and I said, hey, Heather, would you hand me a couple cookies? Okay, Dad, she had, and then Lene walked by and said, hey, Lene, could you get me a glass of milk? The, several petitions like this, and then one of them in exasperation said, Dad, are your legs broken? <laughs> and I thought, well, no, they're not, but I have daughters. It's per, much, so much better, right? But then I realized, oh, wow, they're right. You know, I, I just naturally ask for people to serve me. 
Hmm. And Jesus just naturally served others. Do you know for you and me, it's not typically second nature to serve others? You probably That was a learned thing? And that was convicting when I thought about it. He was constantly looking to serve. If people were giving an honest evaluation of you, would they say you are looking for ways to serve others? Servant leadership is God's idea of leadership, not what can get me to the top. No, our friend Ken Collier at the Wilds Christian Camp says the one with the dirtiest towel wins. The greatest among us is the servant. Hmm. One more for sake of time. So he prayed, he meditated in scripture, he served others. He witnessed, okay? Luke uh, uh, Luke 19.10 says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Every day he was looking for opportunities to witness. I'm an evangelist and I have to remind myself, okay, do I I have tracks in my pocket? Okay, got tracks. Have I spoken anybody today? I actually keep a little checklist in my Bible, in um, in my journal that at the end of the day, okay, did I read the Bible today? Did I pray today? Did I memorize scripture today? Did I witness? Now, again, I'm not spiritual because I can tick off these boxes. That's not why I keep my checklist. I keep it because I don't have an immediate supervisor. I work for the Lord, but I've got no accountability. So I have all the accountability in the world. It's God, but I got to make sure that I hold myself accountable to God. So I keep a little checklist just to make sure I'm doing stuff. And you may think, well, that's just legalism. And well, I heard a guy, I know he's well-meaning, but it was a nationally known speaker saying, you know, when I was a kid, I beat myself up trying to have devotions every day, and then I wasn't keeping up with my devotions. And Let me tell you, you won't really communicate with God unless you make time to do it. And so when I talk about here, he was on soul patrol. I like that way one preacher said it. He deliberately sought opportunities to witness. He deliberately sought opportunity to pray. He deliberately made time to meditate on Scripture, to serve others. Okay, so he says, look, your works can't save you. He that believeth on me, proper view of works, your works can't save you. But the works I do, you'll do also. Okay, the practice of good works. And then he says, and greater works than these shall he do. Now that brings us to the third level here, the pursuit of greater works. Number three, the pursuit of greater works. We're back in John 14, 12. And let's, let's dive into it a little deeper here. Verily, verily, I say to you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, what in the world? Okay, let's start with the breadth of the promise, the scope of the promise. Um, was this just made to the apostles? Some people have the idea, well, you know, greater works, that, that was for Peter and Andrew and James and John. And, well, wait a minute. It says, he that believes on me. We already established that's a Christian, right? I, su- I suggest to you the breadth of this promise, the scope of this promise is any New Testament believer. Any New Testament believer. He that believes on me, the works I do, he'll do also. And then he gives a basis for this. Um, and, and by the way, I I jotted down John 15, 1 through 8. We're in John 14. The next chapter is, I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman, every branch in me that beareth fruit, uh, beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. 
abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Okay, that's the context of you can't do anything without me, but I can bear unlimited fruit through you. Okay, so the one that believes on me, the works I do, he'll do also. Yeah, okay, so the basis of this promise is to his children. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So once you're saved, you're in this category. And what is the basis for the promise? That's the breadth of the promise, the scope of it. What's, what's the basis for it? Well, notice in John 14, 12, he ends by saying, greater works than these shall he do because, here's the basis for it, because I go to my Father. Now, would you tell me, what significant thing happened when Jesus ascended back to the Father? What was the next thing of significance that happened? Yeah, go to John 16, all right, page or 70, which blows our mind. I was having a talk with a man after church today about this. He said, I, 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 I understand that Jesus is the Messiah. I just don't, I can't, I can't really get a hold of this idea that he's God. How, how can he be, how can the Trinity be three yet one? And I, I told him, I believe that's one of the self evident proofs that God revealed himself to man. Man did not come up with the concept of God. We often hear man invented the concept of God. Really, who in his right mind would say we believe in one God, we're monotheistic, but he exists in three persons? Nobody would come up with that. And then in, by way of illustration, the fellow and I were talking, I said, it's kind of like this. Imagine trying to explain calculus to a six-year-old child. I went as high as trigonometry in high school and that was beyond my level of comfort. If you tried to explain calculus to me, I would be totally lost. Imagine trying to explain calculus to a six-year-old. And the man said, oh, it'd, it'd be impossible. I said, imagine trying to be God and explain yourself to us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. That's Romans eleven thirty-three. I said, I believe that the idea of the Trinity is self-evident proof that God revealed himself to man. Nobody came up with that concept. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. And then the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word was with God, and He was God, and He made everything, and then He became one of us. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost. These three are one, 1 John 5, 7. So here we have the eternal Jesus saying, okay, if you believe on me, the works I do, you'll do also. Because I go to my Father. So the Spirit of God comes in. So what does he mean, greater works? When this happens, you'll do greater works. Okay, so I began to meditate on this. How, how, could I, how could I possibly understand? I mean, are we to suggest that humans could do greater works than Jesus, greater miracles? Well, we know his apostles were able to do miracles. They did many of the miracles that Jesus did. You know, they... They gave sight to the blind, and they saw um, a lame man walk and, and other things. But see, you and I are so easily impressed by the sign gifts. That wasn't the most important work that Jesus did. Now, you know, the, the apex of Jesus' miracles was when he raised Lazarus from the dead after four days in the grave. And what a picture that is of the most important of all work is when God gives life to the dead Ephesians 2.1 says, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. I want to tell you, the most important work that God ever does is giving life to dead people. It's called salvation. 
when you're born again. That's the most important thing. So I got thinking, all right, greater works than Jesus, what could that possibly mean? And then it dawned on me. During Jesus' earthly life, he preached to thousands. We know that because, when he, for instance, when he fed the 5,000, that was just the men. They didn't, they, they didn't count women and children. They just counted the heads of household. And so you figure Jews had big families. The feeding of the 5,000, that could have been 20, 30,000. We don't know how many wives and kids were there, but that could have been thousands, okay? Point being, he spoke literally to thousands. But interestingly, you go through the narrative, the gospel, the gospel narratives, you'll find this out. Typically, people came to saving faith one at a time. Though he spoke to multitudes, they were coming to conversion one at a time. Um, John 3, you have Nicodemus. We don't know that he got saved there, but he evidently gets saved later. So he deals with Nicodemus one-on-one. John 4, you got the woman at the well. Um, John chapter 8, you have the woman taken in adultery. Typically, when it comes to the saving of a soul, it's happening on an individual level. You say, what about the 10 lepers that Jesus healed that time? Okay, that's a good one. But remember, only one of them came back to say thanks, and then the Lord says, thy faith hath made thee whole. So they're getting saved individually, right? But on the day of Pentecost, all that changed. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, who six weeks before had cussed and sworn and blatantly denied that he even knew the Lord, stood up and he preached, you took that same Jesus the one you crucified, God raised from the dead. And you remember that day, 3,000. Not only believed, they followed the Lord in baptism and were added to the church. Acts chapter 2 and verse uh, 41, 42. Okay, so saved, baptized, added to the church. 3,000. A couple days later or weeks later, I don't know, it's in chapter 4. And uh, Peter is preaching after the healing of the lame man. And he said, hey, don't look at us like we did this by our own power. And they, they said, how did this man stand before us whole? We used to give money to this guy, and now he's walking and leaping and praising God. And he tells them, the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. You talk about direct preaching. And that day there were 5,000 men that believed on Christ for salvation. Okay, do the math. 3,000 in chapter 2, 5,000. We got 8,000 now. Somebody estimated the population of the city of Jerusalem in the first century was about 80,000. So just those two incidents, that's 10% of the city that had come to faith. Incredible. So would you call that greater works? Now, who did the greater works? It wasn't Peter. Spirit of God in him. But the Savior said to his men during his lifetime, if you believe on me, the works I do, you'll do. Oh, I really struggle with just praying and reading the Bible. Do you think if you ask God to help you with that, he might help you with the daily disciplines? You say, Lord, I'm really a coward when it comes to witnessing, or I'm really just bad about it, or I just forget. Do you think if you pray, the Lord might help you with that? I've been praying this, this year, Lord, help me with my prayer life. I don't want to just go through my list. I have a list. I pray, I pray for needs. Glad to see Jennifer. When you were running for office, I was praying for you. And, you know, God has his hand in all that. Whatever happened in Indiana, he's not done with it yet, you know? I know you know that. But I pray for people in office. I will tell you, praying for political people, that is the most laborious thing on my prayer list. I mean, every day I'm praying for the administration. I'm praying, Lord, either bring them to repentance or ruin, one way or another. We need your intervention. If they won't repent, take them out. I don't mean, you know, I mean, that's up to God how he does that. But I don't mean that as hostility. That's not my place. But, Lord, just don't let them hurt our country. 
You know, pray for kings and for all that are in authority. I think you understand my, the meaning of that. But I will tell you, it is laborious sometimes praying for, I, I empathize with you in California. You know, that's, oh, yeah, yeah. So, but, but God is not thwarted. Okay, can he help you with your prayer life? Can he help you with witnessing? Can he help you be a servant when we're not naturally a servant? Of course. Well, how about this? Can he help us with the element of greater works? So we go back to that opening historical narrative that I gave you. City of New York, Jeremiah Lanfear goes out. He knocks on doors and witnesses to people that he meets in the street, and he, he gives the gospel for an entire year in 1857, and not a single person professes faith in Christ. The next year they said, you know, uh, maybe we need a work of God among ourselves. And they begin to pray, and prayer changes everything, and revival comes and 10,000 a week are being saved, and a million Americans saved in a year's time. Would it be fair to call that greater works? And when I'm praying now, I'm praying for revival. Lord, it's been, it's been 150 years or more since we've seen a national work of God. Yeah, but Rich, we're in the last times. Oh, I know that. I believe we're in the, the end of the last times. I know that but it would not be in any way inconsistent with God's character to visit us with another awakening. In fact, the very passage in Joel, when he says, your young men will see visions, young, your daughters will see, have dreams, whatever, and, and uh, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Okay, I want to tell you something. It is consistent with God's nature. He wants everybody to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I've, I've been praying for the Palestinians as well as the Jews. I know that Jews are God's chosen people, and I know that Hamas is evil, wicked, and awful. But I think, man, imagine growing up in that culture, and that's all you're taught is to hate Jews and to hate the God of the Bible. God, please open their eyes. Please open the eyes of these kids. Please, we don't want these people to suffer. Now, I'm siding with Israel. Okay, Israel's not always right, but God made a promise to them. And, and, they are, and they didn't start this thing. But I'm also praying, God, open the eyes of these Muslim folks. I, my sister and brother-in-law uh, have an outreach in Indonesia, and so many Muslims in Indonesia. And I think about this all the time. What if I'd grown up in a country where all I ever heard was anti-Christ and anti-God of the Bible? Can God reach them? Oh, he is reaching them. God's working in China. I'm hearing stories out of North Korea. North Koreans, where you're not even allowed to speak about Jesus Christ. North Koreans coming to Christ, Chinese coming to Christ, people in India coming to Christ. Look, we can sit back and say, oh, we're just in the last days, or we can believe our Savior. And he said, if you'll believe on me, not only the works I do, you'll do, but greater works than these. I don't know that I, the one who I'm preaching this, I don't know if I've even begun to fully comprehend that. But I believe him, and I want to see my life changed by that. Amen. What about you? Yes. Would you stand with me? Let's just bow our heads as we go to a time of...